Welcome to Wango Spaces. This is a special edition this Tuesday evening. Mostly have them on Thursdays, but today is a special one. We're lucky to have the EABL CFO today. So it'll be really interesting to listen to her journey, her stories and all. So a quick one. It's going to be about one hour of discussions as you free to join in. And the way you can join in on the spaces is three ways. So one, you can... DM us. Secondly, you can go below a pinned tweet and write your question there. We'll have someone who's monitoring that. And the third way you can do it is that just past the 40 minute mark, we'll be able to get in a few people to speak and ask questions. It's more of a discussion of a story. It's more focus on her and her growth. So we talk a little bit about the companies she's worked for, but generally, so we will not be commenting so much about business and all, just so you know. But you're welcome to ask questions from the very beginning. So Karibu Sana to our Spaces. First time on Spaces, right? Yes, thank you very much. Tell us a bit about the day and how you're doing. I'm doing great. I spent the day doing one of the things I really enjoy, which is being an independent non-executive director in one of the boards. And just thinking about business, thinking about strategy, thinking about the way to help business to grow and to look into the future. So it's been a good day. On that note, what do directors do per se? They're paid a lot. But then what exactly does a director do in a company? And what's the distinction between independent and the other one who's not independent? Okay, so independents are the ones that come in once a quarter. They have no affiliation to the company, therefore they come in just to protect the rights of shareholders and to support the organization from arm's length perspective. When you're sitting as an independent, for instance, when you're at the audit committee, you really come in to bring your expertise to the company, but also to make sure that they are doing the right things from a governance perspective. As an executive director, which is my role at EABL, you have a very strong fiduciary duty. You're paid by the company. It's your day job. And your work is really you're delegated to by the shareholders to run the company on their behalf on a day-to-day basis. I hope that's clear. And that's very clear. So maybe let's start with your journey. I was just listening before the spaces, the story that you gave about yourself. So we'll link that maybe later. So perhaps you can begin by telling us a bit about yourself, your journey, maybe a few of the key highlights of your life, career journey so far. Okay, I'll just go straight into it. I think you might have listened to my story I came into Nairobi at the age of about five or six, having been a small village girl living with relatives as my parents were trying to forge their way career-wise. So I'm a second born in a family of seven. We are six girls and one boy. When we came into Nairobi, as I said, I didn't even know a word of English and swiftly came last in the first class I attended. And being coached out of that, I think, just taught me that You can be taught anything, you can be teachable, you can learn anything. And so so having such a hard start with schooling meant that I learned that you can learn, you have the capability to learn. Later on, around class four, I joined Muthaiga Primary School, where I finished my primary education before joining Precious Blood. For those of you who know it, sometimes people called it the prison barracks. Nobody ever saw us leave the school and were always in uniform. And we were on a very strict, almost military regime, a very Catholic and very strict, but it was a great place to, again, learn to survive, learn to cope through some very challenging circumstances and still find positivity in it. When I finished, I joined Strathmore for my CPA on a scholarship. I applied, I told my dad as I was thinking of what to do, and he was an accountant and he told me, this is really hard. I don't think you can do it. And usually you will find that when you tell me I can't do something, then that's all I need to go and show that I can do it. So I applied to Strathmore. They gave me a partial scholarship. 
my dad scrambled around and got some of the remaining money. I remember it was 10,000 shillings he needed to pay. And I got in. And again, it was an excellent experience being taught by legends like Jim McPhee, J.J. Ogola, Julius Kipgetich, all doctors, I should say. And that was just really a great start to an accounting career. I then, alongside that, did my BCom at UN before venturing into the world of work. That's a really nice career journey. Maybe you can tell us a bit about your selection of accounting. Why accounting? Why not any other part of business? As I said, my, first, my dad was an accountant. I didn't think I wanted to be that. But as I said, when he dared me, I thought, you know what, let's see where this goes. But also, I think the way I thought about it was, what did I enjoy the most? I enjoyed numbers. My dad would have wanted me to be a doctor. Clearly, I didn't have the mental fortitude. I would nearly faint at the sight of blood, so that wasn't going to work. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know what, I'm number two of seven. There are many children that are going to need help behind there. As with black tax, it means you always are thinking about who's behind me and how do you make sure they also get a good chance at life. So I was weighing what am I good at and what will enable me to get into the world of work quite quickly and be able to support my siblings. So it was not a very romantic option. It was really just practicality that led me to that option. Fewer ladies choose accounting as an option. And business generally, what has been your journey so far in terms of being a lady in finance and in accounting? Yeah, I think we start out many because I remember when I started out at KPMG and we were a good number of ladies, quite a good mix in the groups that came in. But somehow it seems the ladies do fall off from the career. It does require long hours, very long hours, especially at the outset when you're just starting out. And also it does require quite some strength and for you to be able to keep pushing through. But I think we do get quite a lot of ladies coming in. So I started out at KPMG, which was great. It's one of, I think, the best I made. At the time, I picked it because they come to university and they all showcase what they do. But what I liked was that when I looked at the people that came with KPMG, they were genuinely happy. It was a good place to work. The stories they told were well, quick progression. If you demonstrated capability, you got the opportunities. And so that sold them for me. And I went in and my story was the same of just being given a lot of opportunities. As long as you were willing, you got the opportunities as well. I guess the tough thing is also balancing with family because I started having my kids quite early in my career. And there were days when you don't know whether you're coming or going because you've got a child to bring up, you've got work to do, and you have to try and balance all of them. But I think we can do it. As I said, if you set your mind to do something, definitely will. Yes, and I see you're an alumni of the University of Nairobi. It's, they call it the University of Nairobi, so very proud. <laughs> but then again, you haven't to pursue further studies. No, that's a long story, but let me explain it. Because so when I joined KPMG, as I said, I got my kids quite early. I had my firstborn when I was just about to turn 25. And what has happened to me in my career is that at every turn, every two or three years, I get a new challenge. So every time, I think there was a time I was even at APSA where they were sponsoring masters. I secured the admission. I did everything. And I got a new career opportunity. And I've always found that if the career opportunity gives me a big growth, then I take it as opposed to adding yet another certificate. So yeah, it's good to get different certifications and I recommend that. But I think if I can demonstrate how it is going to improve the quality of my work, 
then I might as well pick work experience, an enriching work experience that expands my knowledge and capability than yet another paper. So it's always a tough trade-off, but I think I make it very confidently. I think with time I might, to be honest, but for now at every turning point, it's always seemed like here's a new career challenge. Will you do it or will you go study? Maybe you should double click then on your career path again. Maybe you can plot that path be, between KPMG to EMBL. How has it been and so what steps did you take from here to the end? What opened doors at particular points in time? Okay, so I think KPMG was great. And as I look at my career, the common thread has been the quality of my work has somehow got me noticed. And it was the same at KPMG. I had great training, great bosses but also just putting myself out there and saying, how can I set myself apart? How do I go in and pick something difficult and do the difficult things? So I worked for KPMG for nine years, but within the first three years, I remember asking the partner in charge that what is it going to take for me to be a partner? And they got shocked because you're three years old. What do you mean? What will it take to be a partner? But that conversation opened up opportunities. They started to see me as a potential partner. And they started to chart out a path towards that meant development opportunities came. That meant any challenging assignments, I was up for it and I picked them up and that helped my career immensely at KPMG. But as the profession evolved and the firm evolved and over time, partnership became more of risk management. You didn't get to work with the teams. You didn't get to work with the clients. You just managed risk and maybe did quite a bit of selling, which I wasn't sure was for me. So I started to debate, is this partnership a thing? I was going through the process. And at the time, I was approached by Barclays. It was on the turn of the financial crisis in 2008. Every global bank was building up their risk capability. And so they phoned me to speak to me about a role. And at the time, the role they offered, I was like, I'm not sure, because I thought the trajectory to partnership was stronger. But they came back after a few weeks and said, look, we've reviewed the role, we've enhanced it, we've made it regional, and it's at a higher grade. Will you come talk to us? I said the conversation started, and I remember going to meet Aidan Mohammed, who was the CEO back then. And by the time I was out of his office, I was sold. I'd initially said, I'm not sure I'm interested. But he was so smart and so clear around the things he wanted to do that I just thought, here's a great opportunity to learn and grow. And so I took the role. Part of also why I took the role was the guys were, my boss was going to be sitting in Dubai. He was an Irish guy. And he was looking to build talent in Africa. They'd been running this unit from outside. And there was just a common belief that maybe there was no talent in Africa. And again, that's something close to my heart. And I said, I can do this. I can build a truly outstanding African team. So I moved over. And one of the first things I did, and when I joined, I remember one guy telling me, you're my boss, but he got my passport to process the visa. And he said, I joined this bank when you were three years old and now you're my boss. And that was just a moment of humility. But just going in and thinking about how I wanted to frame the function, how I wanted to demonstrate that we can deliver as an African team that has the right skills, the right energy. And we just wanted to be the team that everybody wanted to work for. And so started the journey. One of the things I did was to quickly get noticed for some of the reports I did for the audit committee. And the group chief internal auditor shared that report and said, I want to meet this person because the quality of work, the insights, the way that they're thinking is how I want everybody to think. And that got me licensed to then get a few people in the team 
start bringing new energy, start delivering on things that had been previously quite difficult to deliver and start being noticed that something was happening in that team where we were delivering exceptional work. What I also enjoyed at the time was Barclays was truly global. So you were benchmarked against people in New York, people in London. You went for development programs with them and you had to stack up. You couldn't come and show up halfway. You needed to show up and represent. And we enjoyed doing that. We enjoyed going there and showing our staff and surprising everybody. But also your eyes were open to global issues. You weren't now just thinking about Kenya. You were thinking about the global financial crisis. You're thinking about the things that went wrong and how can you preempt them. And you just became a lot more of a professional, of a global professional than just keeping to a small space. So I really enjoyed that. I remember having a conversation later with my previous employer and they were saying, would you come back? And I told the lady who was a very good supporter of mine that I couldn't. The world is so big and I just discovered it. So I did that for three years based in Kenya. I was covering East and West Africa at the end of three years. And I felt that it was time for something new. And one of the things I always do is knock on doors. And I went and asked the group chief internal auditor on one of my trips there that you've always hired the head of Africa out of the UK. What will it take for someone like me to get a job like this one? And immediately she was shocked that I asked the question, but I could also see that Maybe they hadn't thought of me yet. And immediately he said to me, the job is coming up. Would you take it? And I asked him, what's the location? Because it was previously in Dubai. And he said, the location is probably going to be South Africa. Would you take it? And I said, yes. And so I was then lined up to interview for this role and got the role. And even at that stage, I was saying, we know you're not ready. We believe that you can land this. You can deliver this. So off I went, carried my family, my three daughters and husband down to South Africa to start to see a bigger market. Because at some point I'd realized that by the time you're group chief internal auditor here, you need to see a bigger market in order to expand your horizons. So South Africa was it for me. Moved there, big cultural shift, but again, really great growth culturally, technically and leadership wise. After three years again, I decided to ask my boss for a change in stint. I was still doing internal audit then. And I said, I want to, eventually I want to go back home. So I want to get experiences that direct me back towards my home country. And that means I need to be broader compared to being specialist. I took a short six month stint in Mozambique which was very interesting. Again, in Mozambique, it's Portuguese speaking. We had a business that was going through a really difficult time. And I took an assignment for six months to just support the team that was reworking the restructure of that business and come up with a business case, which is now what is being implemented, which was quite an experience for me as well. So that was my first stint in finance. I also remember sitting with Jeremy, former MD, and saying, I want to be an FD. I've done my gap analysis. Here are all the things that I know, and here are the two or three things that I need experience in in order for me to be an FD. And so that, again, owning that meant that I then got the right support to learn aspects of running the treasury, which I hadn't done before, but there were a number of areas that I had already covered. That also took a lot of conversations with people because at the level I was, it was seen that a finance director role in a country was a level below. So I was... in actually asking to take a step back or a step down and difficult conversations of saying, I see what this will do for me career-wise, but I'm not taking a demotion. 
because I earned this promotion. Eventually, I got hard and the doors were opened and an opportunity opened up to be a finance director in Zambia. It took that MD believing that this person can actually do this job. They've never been an FD, but we think they've got what it takes. Landed in Zambia, exciting macroeconomically. Those of you who know about Zambia around 2016, the worst currency depreciation, the highest inflation, liquidity crisis, everything you'd have done in a master's on crisis management and jumped right into it. And I was at the same time doing a new system implementation and I had to qualify as an accountant in Zambia as well. And really exciting times, challenging, but totally exciting. I did four years there. And as I was coming to the end of the term, EABL came knocking. They were looking for a CFO. And my name was mentioned by somebody. They phoned me, me up on LinkedIn. We had a conversation. And that's how I came back to Kenya to work with EABL, not having known a thing about alcohol or spirits or beer. And that was, again, me being teachable and saying, there's nothing that I cannot learn if I apply myself to it. Not to digest there, but two things I pick up is one is that you're very clear on what you really want and you clearly defined, like when you went to your boss and told them these are the things they need to go to the next level. And then secondly, of course, the, uh, the aspect of quality work, which speaks for itself. So what brings about those two, especially qualities out of you and how have you developed them yourself? I think I've not asked myself so much about that, but I think one is just Thinking back to my upbringing, I feel that I'm very lucky. Growing up in those early days back in the village and all the little girls you played with didn't have much of a chance. So you know that if you had a chance, you have to grab it. And when you grab it, you have to give it your best. And so just knowing that I'm very fortunate to have even just an education. And so when an opportunity presents itself, I don't hold back. I give everything that I have. And if I fail, it's not for lack of trying. Being clear, I don't know if it's been clear. I tell people I've never had those five-year plans played by year. I feel the restlessness in my house and I know it's time to move. And I keep learning. I think that's what I do is I ask myself, is the learning complete? Because if it is, then it's time to move. And if it's not, then I keep looking for that opportunity to learn. So I think it's just training yourself to know where am I at this point in time? What's my season? What's my situation? And do I have more to extract out of this opportunity? And then where else do I want to grow and how do I move from there? Some of it is luck as well. I think sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time and somebody notices you without you even thinking about it as you go about doing your best work. And in terms of cultural shifts between banking and now in the consumer space, no? how was that from thinking about maybe banking ratios and now to thinking about more consumer ratios and net margins at all. It was interesting because also I came in during COVID when everything everybody knew kind of went out of the window. So when I came in, the immediate need of the business during COVID was just thinking about the balance sheet and financing, which was the thing I knew. So it was easy to add some value, but also to start thinking about where are we exactly right now as a business and how do I input? And again, early Banking is very highly regulated, so there's a lot of risk management and there's a lot of you almost risk and you you try and dodge it. Whilst I find that when you're in enterprise and you're producing, you're always looking for opportunities. So you just have to have a positive opportunity mindset, always exploring a way out. And if you get something wrong, you'll fix it. Do try something else. 
So I found that quite a shift. It needed different things from me. I still have to check myself and say, are you being too risk averse here? Can you see the opportunity? Can you focus on what's going to move the dial here? Because our tendency is always to go back to the things that we are most familiar with. But I think my banking experience has served me well. My audit experience and just process knowledge and things like that, controls, has served me well. But also being part of managing the performance, the strategy is exciting stuff that I've come to find out here. And speaking maybe from the perspective of a CFO, how does the role of a CFO differ from that of the CEO and how do you support each other? Maybe specifically is the case at EABL. The two are very complementary and I've also found that, to be honest, it differs depending on who your CEO is. You shape yourself as the CFO to fit into what they need the most. So I've had CEOs that are very risk-focused, very numbers-focused. It means I have to switch and become more sales-facing, opportunity-facing. I've had CEOs who are different. They're very sales-focused or commercial. Then I find I have to be the one that's holding the risk management side of things. But then the important thing is constantly talking to each other so that you complement one another. Now, the CEO really drives strategy execution. In a lot of spaces, they're also very commercial. So driving the key business, whether it is selling or even in a bank, it will be some form of selling. You support each other very strongly on the strategy, but the CFO manages performance from a numbers perspective. You take care of risk management, you take care of funding, you take care of investment decisions. So those are some of the things you do. You take care of investor relations. So it's quite a broad role. But it has to be seen in partnership with your CEO and how you play to each other's strengths and, and make sure that you deliver your best work together. And maybe give us a week in the life of a CFO. How does that look like? Remember a quarter in the life of a CEO. And what I like about it is that there is no typical week, no typical day, no typical quarter. You prioritize as you go along. The world is so dynamic. One minute you're dealing with sales, you're dealing with taxation, you're dealing with pricing, you're dealing with inflation. You're dealing with your board, you're dealing externally with funders. So I think one just has to be very fluid, but also very scheduled so that you're putting the right priorities first. I've always enjoyed having a dynamic work environment and somehow the CFO role is dynamic. Now there are routines that are standard. There will always be month-end reporting. There will always be quarter-end reporting. There will always be, be a half-year reporting. But every time you try, you bring in a nuance to it. What's my message? You don't just take the numbers and report. What's your story? How do you drive performance? How do you get the right information to bring out the right actions? How do you think about the business and your numbers? So I think it's rarely ever typical in any day or quarter, but it's quite dynamic and still very exciting. And what do you think makes someone successful in the role of a CFO? What are some of the qualities or perspectives you've seen that would be good to develop early on in your career if you want to be a CFO someday? I think first, you just must know what you're doing. A CFO is a technical role. So understanding financial control is where I always say in jest that it's the thing that will take you to jail. So understand your financial control because if your numbers are wrong, if your numbers are not supported, that's the thing that will get you into trouble. So have your foundations right in terms of your knowledge of finance, your knowledge of numbers, your knowledge of processes. That is core. Leadership, you can't do everything yourself. So you have to lead a team and you have to find the best way to unlock them so that they cover you. You will depend on people. So how do they bring their best and even do better than you could do yourself? Thirdly is, for me, integrity and strength of character. If 
integrity is not your thing, don't be a CFO because you will land in very dangerous spaces. So integrity is huge. Also, just knowing your stakeholders, you have a lot of stakeholders from regulators to tax authorities to boards to internal stakeholders to customers. Just knowing who is who and how do you interface with them is very important. So there's a lot, but I think those are what I would say is really critical. And then also, as you become CFO, you have to rely a lot more on people to do a lot of the grounds work for you to implement some of the things that you want to implement. How do you do the capacity development for the people who work with you that you're able also like to have them deliver? And how do you pick some of the people, what are some of the qualities you're looking for in the people to work with? I think the first step is the last part is getting the right people. And first, they must not be you. So if you keep hiring yourself, you're maybe going to miss something. So I always go for people who will compliment me in areas where I'm not as strong. I want to make sure that I've got somebody who, for example, is commercial. I haven't grown in the brewing industry, so I want somebody who's got that strongly. I still have to have the ability to tell, is this right or wrong? I still need to have a very strong big picture view, a very strong view of strategy, but connect with people and compliment you rather than people who are just like you. Secondly, then, is really investing in learning. I think nobody knows everything, so making sure that you build a learning culture where people are free to discuss things, share ideas, challenge each other, correct each other. In such an environment, then, is when you get the best work. And you do that by building an environment where people know that their opinion matters, know that they're in the right space to contribute fully and to be able to deliver their best work. I've found when you do that, you get extreme outstanding outcomes. When you go from one role to the next, do you take your people with you or do you just go to the new place and set up a new system there or work with the people over there? I've unfortunately always ended up going to different countries, so can't always take even my good people. But I think my movement opens up room for them to grow. So it's right that I build a succession plan, that I work myself out of a job so that I create room for my people. But then also wherever you go, there's also people just waiting for that opportunity to step up. So going into a new space and listening and seeing who is it that's been waiting or is just ready for the next big thing and how do you help them get there? How do you help them bring their very best? So I rarely, if ever, carry people with me. What I find is I still coach them. I still mentor them. I still hear from people I knew years ago in KPMG telling me, I'm now doing this fantastic thing in America or in Canada. And for me, that really makes me proud. Very interesting. And then in terms of developing yourself out of the job, because you're developing other people, what gives you that perspective? Because a lot of leaders that you find around, especially in the political space, they want to be there forever. What gives you the impetus then to create or to develop people around you can take over when you move on to the next step? I think I mentioned it. I'm a firm believer that if you're not growing, you're dying. So the minute you stop growing, you need to ask yourself a few concerns. And that's what I tend to do is I ask myself, am I still growing? And if I've stopped growing, then, or if I'm seeing that my growth is slowing down so much, then it's time to start thinking about how do I extend myself? And so that's my mantra that I've got to keep growing and you can't grow if you stay in the same place. And if you don't build succession, you're not going to move and you're just going to be stuck there. So it doesn't always work the way you want it to. But I think if you keep the mindset, I also say that opportunities open when you're in a good headspace. So you're on top of your game, you're doing your best work, you're achieving your best growth, then the doors will open for you. But if you're miserable and dragging yourself to work, 
and you're not growing, you're not learning, then the doors, they struggle to open, they fail you and they just don't come to you. We are almost at the 40 minute mark. So I wanted to once again remind the audience that if you want to participate in the conversation, you can either DM us, checking the DMs, or you can also just below our pinned tweet, you can put your question there. Then finally, also, you can just request to speak and we can allow you, especially if you have a profile picture and not an anonymous account, and then we can able to get the question from you. So we keep going until we get a few questions, but there's a really nice comment from Lean. She's saying very inspiring story. You're very brilliant. And maybe this is something that is very common among the people that I've talked to, including some at Mwango, they view you in high regard. How do you handle fame, by the way? And what do you think makes you very good at what you do? I think first, there are two things. I don't think I'm famous at all. I keep it to myself. I'm an introvert. I get the job done. And once in a while, I push myself out there. Then you will see me doing a few brief things. But I tend to just really keep to my space because that's what I like. Having said that, I think it's also important to know the difference between who I am as RISPA and the office of the CFO of EABL or ABSA or wherever else. The office will demand certain things of me, but I have to remember who am I authentically and not confuse myself with the role. Who am I without that job has to be really clear to me. And that will determine how I handle people, how when I meet people, how I deal with them, how I interact with them. And I believe that you can only bring your genuine, honest self to any given situation as long as you don't confuse yourself with your title. In terms of being brilliant, I don't know anymore that I am that brilliant. I think I just apply myself. It's been ingrained, I think, from an early age and through the years. It's just, you've got a limited time on this earth. Why not make an impact? And then in terms of the people who you've seen come to work with you, what are some of the things that you could urge people to develop in terms of maybe the Kenyan workspace as you compare maybe to the South African workspace? And on that note, so you can tell us a bit of the cultural differences that you've noticed in terms of the corporates seen in South Africa and Kenya and Zambia. I think there are a lot more similarities than differences. But I think the main one for me is that uh, try and bring efficiency to how we work. Where we can, it makes a difference. So if you bring an improvement that cuts the time your guys are spending in the office from three nights to a few hours, you move the dial on things. And that's some of the stuff we've done wherever we've gone to say, how can we make this quicker so that as finance, we don't spend time bringing out the number, but we spend more time now thinking about how can the business get shaped? How do we shape the business going forward? So I think it's just about getting that. I also think getting a bit more balance. I remember being in SA and working at 6.30 p.m. and it's a large office and you look around and you're all alone and everybody's gone. But they've built a culture of you work when you're supposed to work and you go home when you're supposed to go home and nothing falls. So I think it's just weighing, how do we get better at that? Because I always wonder who's raising our kids when we're all working day and night and just not getting a good level of balance. Now, some of it is seasonal. There will be seasons where you have to put in the extra just because you're building something. But we really must aspire to get, I think, a better sense of balance better efficiency, whether it's through automation or other things. I think we've got a real opportunity there. Otherwise, I suspect we shall start to see some of the impacts later on. Other differences, I think, are also around, there's a lot more specialization in bigger markets, so you will get a lot more support. You may be an FD of just cost. You're just looking at cost and you're the FD of that. Then you get deep and specialized in that. 
Whereas for us, you've got to be a lot more general and know a lot more across a number of things. Each of them comes with different benefits and different skills. And so I think having both experience both sides is actually a very good skill to have as well. There's a question here from Curious Georgie on book recommendations. What are you currently reading and do you have any book recommendations? I have tons of seasons when I read and then I have seasons when I buy books and just admire them. When I came back, I'd been away for eight years and then I came back into COVID and it was a tough time and all my networks had dissipated. And one of the things I did and a young lady on LinkedIn just reached out to me and said, would you like to join a virtual book club? And it's probably one of the best things I've done. It's called the Ladies Book Breakfast. There's a gentleman's book breakfast and we cover a number of books over time and We've been reading Master Your Emotions, yes, an amazing book and just reading it and having conversations around how you navigate some of the difficult situations that life has to offer has really given me new perspective that I'd read it sooner. I've read recently The Power Focus. I've quite a long list. And as I say, sometimes I read, sometimes I admire the books. Sometimes I just read fiction as well. I enjoy anything that, that is in a book format. I've got quite a list, but Master Your Emotions has got to be one of the best books I've read recently. And maybe you could add a bit of interest outside your CFO role. What are you engaged in? And then he's asking something about interacting with stakeholders. Do you go on the ground and see where the products are being consumed and all? Yes. Okay. So the first question was, just ask it again. The first question is about co-curricular activities, maybe outside. Oh books and reading financial statements. What else do you do? I enjoy traveling. I've probably, I stopped counting, but I've probably visited 30 countries in Africa more than some of them. It started out as work and then I just built an interest in travel. So I like to do that. I walk a lot. Again, a very new interest, but I tend to do quite a bit of walking. I, I host a lot. I love to have people around me. Growing up, I didn't quite like it when my dad did that, but now I find I've become him. But so we I tend to host quite a lot. <laughs> so I'm a complicated introvert. Let's say I'm an ambivert. <laughs> and then the second question on that one was? The second question was about interacting with distributed teams on the ground, something like that. How often are you interacting with them? I think I do. I do get out onto, on the market across a lot of countries. Not nearly enough, I have to say. Not nearly enough, but I do get out quite a bit to see just how distributors are doing, how even at the plant are we doing, how is the warehouse doing, what are their issues? Because I think you have to be in touch with what's happening on the ground. Otherwise, you will make decisions in the ivory tower that have no sense in reality. So I do a bit of that, not, as I say, not as much as I would like to, but it is one of the things that I consider absolutely essential for you to really understand what's on the ground and then to make the right decisions when they come to your table. On that note, then, are you, do you test the products? Do you do product testing also? We don't do product testing. <laughs> but I'll say is that we've got a great range of products. If you are of the type, please try I do a little bit of gin and tonic once in a while. But yeah, we do have a really great range of products that I didn't even know existed before I joined the company. And what's your take in terms of over drinking? As a company, we're quite big on responsible drinking. It's one of the things we advocate. We don't design product for people to drink irresponsibly. Too much of anything as is dangerous. So we really encourage that you take the product. You have, we've got so many resources around drink IQ. If you're a young adult, please don't drink before you go through drink IQ to understand what is alcohol, what's in it, 
how do I, if I'm going to take it, make a, a clever decision around what to take, when to take, how much to take. Otherwise, a lot of people just get into it without understanding and then it quickly goes wrong. But I think that's what I would say. We are big on responsible drinking. We want people to drink better, not more. We are about celebrating life every day, everywhere. I think that's all I will say about that. I think that's important to know. And then so you carry around like three products to give people you meet to know, right? Not quite. We are trying to make money for our shareholders. We really are trying. There's a question here. Since you've been to Zambia, and I think this is a question I'll connect to the Zambia situation where you were in 2016 and the situation there about the depreciating currencies and all. So somebody is asking, what do you think about the state of the economy currently? And what can young people do to position ourselves more actively in resolving the continuous challenges we are facing as a country? So I think this is more of a perspective about the economy and maybe comparing it a bit to the situation in Zambia and the resolution around it. It should take me all day to try and explain the two. But I think what I will say is that in all of these challenges, there's opportunity and one just has to be really alert to how can we solve the current problem. So if you think about businesses now, there's huge, massive inflation. If you can solve that for a business, bring a solution to it. If you can solve a credit issue for businesses, then it's an opportunity. So I think it's just training ourselves to bring solutions to every situation means that you then can actually make what is a bad situation quite positive. So I think we all have a role to play. I think the nature of economics is that it is cyclical. There will be tough times and then there will be better times. But in all of those days, opportunities, just figuring that out capitalizing on it and making sure you do your part to bring it home. Any lessons from Zambia that you could give Kenya? Let me just yeah, clear off politics for today. That's understandable. There's a question here about how you handle financial crisis and unexpected events that could impact the company's bottom line and what steps you take to mitigate risk. This is more about risk management. And when you come into a company as a CFO, one of the bigger roles is obviously risk management, just controls and all. So how do you handle that? And I think in that regard, maybe it would be wise to also speak a bit about of the excess duty and the impact it's had on your business. I think the best example of managing crisis was COVID. And what we learned really quickly was, as finance people, is really getting very speedily to scenario analysis. What if you don't know what's going to come at you tomorrow, but you've got to anticipate everything and have a plan and say, if this happens then, and if tomorrow that scenario changes, how quick and agile are we to anticipate it and to respond to it? And similarly, even now, just quickly getting to what's really happening around me. How do I synthesize quickly what's coming at me and how do I get a response in there quickly? And I think COVID really brought that home quite strongly. On exercise, I think we've talked about it extensively. It's a tough one because one of my colleagues shared that for every bottle of beer, 107 shillings is going into taxes. That is not comparable to any other market in the region. It does make for very difficult times. Three excise increases in one year is really aggressive. I think it does challenge our attractiveness also as a destination for investment. So it's very important from a policy perspective that we think about these things, we think about them long term. We want more business, then we get more taxes. But if we tax the few businesses and into a very difficult place, then it just contracts. So we're hoping that as we continue the engagements and the conversations, which are always positive, that we get to a point where we get more consistent policy direction as far as excise tax is concerned. Because then you start to think to yourself, if I was an investor, 
where would I place my factory? It would be somewhere where I have some assurance of how the policy direction will shape up. I understand the tough choices the government has to make, but I think it does need a step back to say, is it really going to help in the long term? A question here, do you miss internal audits? No, sorry. No. No, no. When I left internal audits and I enjoyed every bit of it, I wanted to be on the side doing things, not telling people how to do. Trust me, doing things is hard. Telling people how it should be done is the easy part. But, and I think it has its place. I think it just gives you such a great panoramic view of the business and such strong foundations for whatever else you choose to do. But I think for me, it's, I really wanted to be in a space where now, can I make some decisions? Can I drive a business? Can I drive outcomes? As opposed to looking over the fence and saying, maybe you should do X. So I enjoyed it. It gave me an excellent foundation, but I think it was time to do something different. It seems like when you move, you really do move. I do. <laughs> Carry bags and everything. Then you're off to South Africa, to Zambia, back it's, to Cape. It's never that easy, but I think you shouldn't get attached to things. They're just things. Very important. And then in terms of career-wise, what are some of the challenges that you faced along the way that you had to overcome maybe as you reason up the corporate ladder that maybe you didn't anticipate that you maybe would want to tell someone starting out their career? Or something to your younger self about maybe challenges you just anticipate and prepare for as you rise up the corporate ladder? Challenges, it's really hard because I only think about the challenges later. But I think when I look back, for me, it was just my reluctance sometimes to speak for myself, just holding back and being quiet when I could have spoken or also sometimes second guessing myself when I really was equipped to do something. So there are situations and there are quite a few where I've put myself forward and said, here I am, I want to do this. But there are also times when I've just held up back and said, maybe I'm not ready. And I've got a few mentors who tell me, yeah, now you're just making excuses. Finding such people helps you to come out of that comfort zone. But for sure, I think that's a big one. Not speaking up for myself, not declaring my intent and second guessing myself when there really isn't any grounds to do that. And how do you deal with that self-doubt? I think you've talked about having mentors. Are these people you go out and seek and ask to be your mentors or do they come to you? How do you select them? It's funny because I don't think I've ever asked them to be my mentor. They just somehow become, a lot of them are either they have been my boss and they had such an impact in my growth that I've just maintained the connection. One, because I admire them, I admire their work ethic and they've played a big role in who I am. So I keep them quite close. Others, because generally what I tend to do is I discovered at some point that actually senior people like to help people. Most people spend their time thinking they should be feared and don't go to them. But I realize if you ask them, can I come and talk to you about my career? They're always very willing. So I've just picked different people along the way who help me through, who call my bluff when they think I'm selling myself short, or who also sometimes just open the door and say, you should think about X or you're underselling yourself. Maybe you need to elevate yourself a bit more. And I think it's important to identify who those might be. I've somehow managed to meet them in the course of work mostly. So either line manager or a colleague that just somehow calls something out of you that's greater than yourself. And then someone asked you, if you're not in financial services or within finance, what do you think you'd be doing? As I said, I think if you just decide to do something, you can. And I've learned if you remain teachable, you remain positive, you avail yourself to the opportunity, then you can be anything 
you want to be. I've enjoyed my time in finance. I'd like to do broader things, strategy, drive businesses. I'm open to whatever may come. But I really, at the moment, I'm enjoying what I do. And I think there's still a lot more that I can do in this space. We're drawing to a close. I think we've exhausted a lot of the questions that are coming through. How do you stay up to date, especially trends and developments and emerging tech? How are you keeping yourself knowledgeable in that regard? And also, how do you keep continuous learning of the personal experience? I think in our world, one cannot be complacent. You have to be very willing to learn. Some things you learn directly, some things you surround yourself with people different than yourself. I'm constantly being taught by my kids. They're just like, how backward is this person who doesn't understand basic things and process I learn. But I think it's just being very teachable, reading widely, investing in just conversations with people who will add value to you. So I think those are some of the things I do. You had a second part to the question. In terms of keeping yourself abreast, what are some of the things that you're reading? Oh, no, I think I've covered that. So just generally reading quite broadly and quite a wide range of topics does keep you grounded. Your second piece, I think, was around technology. There's quite a lot. And I think we haven't even scratched the surface of things like robotics to make some of our processes quicker, easier. There's a lot of automations, a lot of data and just data analytics that can really make the lives of finance people a lot easier. And I guess as a finance person, I'm always saying, what are you doing that cannot be done by a machine? So if yours is just to run the number and prepare the accounts, that's going to be done by a machine real quick if it's not being done yet. So then saying, how can I add value? How can I be different? How do I differentiate myself every single day? And then your dad has played quite a big role in your life. And maybe you can discuss that a bit and especially maybe share in terms of some of the people who are listening, how important the family is in trying to get you to that goal in life that you want to be at. Yeah, I talked about my dad, but also my mom. She's the one that had to leave her three kids to go and get a degree, which I believe that if she didn't do that, we maybe wouldn't have had the opportunities that we had. But also my dad, I've talked about it extensively, raising three young girls by himself, personally coaching you to believe that you can do things. So that that time that you spend just telling somebody that you can do this, you can be better than you really think that you are. And through every critical stage of my life, I remember him driving me to the KCP exam. And he didn't quite know what he was saying because he was talking about gears and I didn't know much about gears. But he was kind of just telling me this message of now is the time to just bring your best self. And through my life, he's really done that. My mom, the chances she took and the risks she took And the change it made in our lives means that I also feel the need to do things that my daughters may aspire to. So I think it's just about taking that time. It matters, the role modeling, the investment, the talking and saying, I believe in you and you can do this. When I didn't know English, it's my dad who coached me and told me, you're going to be just fine. Eventually when I was, it was really credit to him believing in me. But also just his nature. He's the kind of person who respects you, whoever you are, whether you're rich, poor. He doesn't change his countenance because of who you are and what you have. And I've learned that as well, that just handle people as they come. You don't need to be different to somebody because you think they might give you something or not. Just be yourself and treat everybody with kindness and respect. Speaking of kindness, maybe you can share a bit on any interesting story or kind story someone has ever done to you in your career or life? 
it's a small one. I'll make it real quick because I can see we're running out of time. But I remember having my first child, as I said, at the beginning of my career. And one of my bosses called me. And back then you didn't have children in audit. How dare you? Even if you had a child as a man, you didn't talk about it. And here I was having a child. But one of my managers just called me into his office and he told me one thing that I've never forgotten about the season. And he said, Rispa, in this season, the most important thing is your child. Don't worry about people who are going to Harvard or Yale. They're in a different season. Those who are being promoted, those who are doing different things, they're in a different season. For you, your most important priority is to make sure you have a safe child. Now, that doesn't mean you're lazy. That doesn't mean you slow down. You still bring your best on the days that you can. And on the days when you're not well, you still handle it through people. But your biggest priority at this point is to have that child safely. And it also taught me then that nothing lasts forever. Recognize your season, know what is needed for that season and apply yourself for that season. And when the next season comes, you'll be ready for it. And that's something that I've always just carried with me to recognize my season and then show up for it according. Perfect point to end the spaces today. Thank you so much for joining us, Rispa, today. Hopefully we'll get you for the full year results for EABL at some point, and then you'll be able to analyze that. But thank you for sharing your story and your journey. Thank you everyone for joining us on the spaces today.